Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. Welcome to the Moth Podcast. I'm your host, Dane Wilburn. Election Day, believe it or not, is a month away, and we want to remind you that your voice and your vote matter. This week, we have two stories for you about what happens when you go above and beyond your civic duty. The good, the bad, and the ugly. First up, Maddie Shresky. Maddie told this story at an L.A. Grand Slam where the theme of the night was the tipping point. Here's Maddie, live at the Moth. My daughter, Rain, is about to turn five years old next month, and when she was about two years old, she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And in most ways, Rain's just like every other kid her age, but the CP has affected her ability to walk, so she needs a wheelchair to get around. And when she was first born, I was hit with this wave of, of world-changing optimism where I was like, I'm gonna do my part to make the world a better place for everybody. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become an avid recycler, and I'm gonna start cleaning up beaches, and I'm gonna single-handedly curb global warming. But Raising a child is exhausting, and very quickly I realized I was not going to do any of those things, and I needed to just focus on raising my daughter as best I could and spend as much time as I could with her. And so Rain and I have been going on adventures around Los Angeles since she was a baby. You know, we go to the museums or the parks or the, or the observatory or wherever, and bringing Rain around the city in a wheelchair has made me hyper-aware of all the obstacles that are out there blocking her access to things. And I'm not a really confrontational guy by nature, so when we first started bumping into these things, I didn't see the point in making a really big deal out of it. I, I didn't think it would make a difference or change anything. So, you know, I'd see a car blocking the sidewalk and I'd be like, no big deal. I can wheel her into the street and we can go around it. Or I'd see an able-bodied person parking in a disabled person's spot and I'd say, you know, that's frustrating, but they're probably just running in real quick. We can wait. Or I'd be in a building and I'd say, oh, there's no elevator or ramp in this building. She's little and she's light. I can, I can carry her up the stairs. So one day, we, our adventuring took us to Grant Park right here in downtown Los Angeles, and the, the motto for Grant Park is the park for everyone. And we get there, and it's an amazing park. It's got this great set of ramps, and Rain loves to go bombing down it in her chair, and it's got these really smooth, flat, concrete services that she could cruise around on, and we're chasing each other around, playing tag. And best of all, it's got this really great splash pad. You know, it's this big area with like a quarter inch of water, and it's got little fountains that bubble up, and it's a hot day, and Rain's having a great time just rolling around there, letting the water splash her in her chair. We're just having a great day. And all of a sudden, I see the security guard motioning me over to him at the side of the water, and I just get this pit in my stomach because I know what's about to happen. And I walk over, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, we have a no wheelchairs policy in the splash pad. She's going to have to get out. And I'm saying, a no wheelchair policy? Seriously? And he says, well, I mean, it's not just wheelchairs. It's, it's bicycles or skateboards or rollerblades or anything like that. And all of a sudden, I just get this flash of all the obstacles that Rain has to work around every day just to get to a place like this. And now somebody's telling her that she can't play here. And I just don't think it's fair at all. And I start to get really emotional. And I say, you know what? We're actually not going anywhere because <laughs> she's not riding a bike or a skateboard or rollerblades. You know, her wheelchair is her means of mobility. It's not a toy. And I start to get even more worked up. And I say, you know, you can't just discriminate against people with disabilities. There's laws against that. So no, we are not going anywhere until she is ready to go. 
And the security guard just has this look on his face like I am ruining his day. And he says, you know, I'm only doing what my supervisor came told me to come over here and do. Let me make a phone call to him. And, and he steps away to make this phone call. And I start silently psyching myself up for this argument that I know I'm about to have with these people. And I'm like, yeah, you go ahead. You call your supervisor. Call all the supervisors. You know, you gotta, we're not going anywhere. She has every right to be here. You're gonna have to spray me with tear gas and, and fire hose to get me to go. And as I'm reaching sort of the pinnacle of my righteous anger, Rain wheels over to me and she says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Can we go get some tacos? And I'm torn because on the one hand, I really want to dig my field in and fight this. But on the other hand, I do not want to have to deal with a hungry four-year-old. And I really do love tacos. So I walk over to security guard who's wrapping up his phone call and I say, hey, we are going to go, but I need you to know that we are leaving because she is hungry and she is ready to go, not because you told us we have to go. And I need to make sure that you understand the difference here. And he's just like, oh, okay, that's great. And he's just very excited that we're leaving without causing a scene. So a short time later, we're, we're eating our tacos and I'm replaying the incident in my head and it's just, it's eating at me. You know, I'm, I'm getting madder and madder and I'm not enjoying my tacos at all, which is making me even madder. And because I just don't want to ignore what happened. And so I don't really know what to do. So I, I pick up my phone and I just, I anger tweet at Grant Park, this photo of rain playing in the splash pad. And I say, why did the park for everybody just tell my daughter she wasn't welcome because she's in a wheelchair? And amazingly, within about five minutes, a spokesperson from the park got back to me via Twitter with an email, and they said, please tell us everything that happened. We are very concerned about this. So I did, I, I told them everything that happened, and I said, you know, a big part of me wanted to tell that security guard to call the police and have them come and drag a four-year-old in a wheelchair out of a splash pad and see how that went for everybody. But truthfully, a much bigger part of me just wants to be able to go to a park with my daughter like every other father gets to do and not have to explain to her why she's not allowed to play where all these other kids are playing. And they sent back this incredible response where they apologized to Rain and they admitted that they handled everything poorly and they said as a result they were going to start holding training sessions where they told everybody there that people in wheelchairs were not only welcome, but they should feel encouraged to use the space. And I felt incredible after I got this response because it made me realize that speaking up and saying things can actually help change things. And now when I see things blocking Rain's access, I speak up all the time and I know it's worth the effort because when I get to see her acting like every other kid her age, I, I feel like I made the world just a little bit better place for her. And now that's helped me recapture some of that enthusiasm that I had when she was first born. And, and we are, we're avid recyclers and we've gone and we've gone to beach cleanups. And you know, we're probably not gonna single-handedly stop global warming, but as the temperatures rise and the days get hotter, I know I can take her to that splash pad at Grant Park and cool off for a little bit. That was Maddie Stretsky. Maddie is a full-time stay-at-home dad. Way to go, dad. Maddie says Rain is now in kindergarten, but they still find plenty of time to go adventuring around the city. And they've been back to Grand Park several times since the story took place, and thankfully, everyone has been very welcoming. To see photos of Maddie and his family, head to themoth.org. Our second story is from Javier Murillo. Javier told this story at a main stage event in St. Paul, his first time ever on a moth stage. Here's Javier. So I was uh, not six months into my first job as a political organizer 
when my boss pulled me aside and started talking to me about one of our local unions here in Minnesota, the Union of Janitors. Um, the president was this sort of Minnesota German grandpa type, uh, but the membership was about 4,000 uh, janitors at the time, overwhelmingly immigrant, the vast majority from Latin America. And uh, most of the members spoke little to no English, and uh, he, the president, spoke no Spanish. So my boss tells me that the German grandpa wants to retire and that uh, he had not really developed anyone to, to lead the union after him, either from members or staff. And um, he says, we're looking for someone and it needs to be someone who speaks Spanish, preferably someone who's Latino. And I'm thinking that he's asking me to help him find someone, but instead he says, and we think you can do it. And I think you are crazy. <laughs> I don't know anything about janitors. Uh, my partner will tell you, I'm not crazy about cleaning the house. <laughs> and just a little, you know, over a year uh, before that conversation with, uh, with my boss, I was teaching history at a, at a college here in, in St. Paul. I was an academic until the death of a hero of mine, Senator Paul Wellstone, uh, who had left his life as an academic to become an activist and, uh, and politician. His death really, it, it rattled me and, uh, and tore me apart, but then it energized me to do something different. And so, but when I started this job, I thought it was a first job in politics, not you know, a path to becoming a union president. Um, and uh, I didn't think it was right. It didn't seem right for me to become the leader of a union where I had not been a member. Uh, I do speak Spanish. I am indeed Latino, but my sort of my life history is very different than that of uh, so many of the janitors. They are recent immigrants. Uh, many of them crossed treacherous deserts um, to get to the United States in search of a better life. I am Puerto Rican. We are born American citizens. And I came to the US years ago as a financial aid kid to go to college at Yale University. They uh, work long hours late at night, invisible to many of the office workers who populate skyscrapers during the day. I, after Yale, spent my life not laboring uh, with my hands, but reading books and writing papers on Latin American history. Um, I had never negotiated a contract before, but I love to argue, um, <laughs> and I hate to lose. Um, uh, and although I had never sort of organized protests or marches before, I learned very quickly that you cannot make the invisible visible without you know, starting a bit of a ruckus. And so, you know, not two years since the last time I was in the classroom, I became president of this very quiet union that we worked and have worked very hard to turn into a very loud and fighting union. And the work very immediately seemed right. There was one thing that, despite any differences between us, has always connected me to the janitors, is if you, if you come to any of our member meetings, there are always lots of children around, lots of you running around, and there's a lot of joy in the room. Uh, and when members and janitors talk about their decision to come to the US, many will say that they did so 
um, to, to search for a better life for, for their kids. And that I see in my own life. I see my parents in their eyes. I was uh, born, I was the third of four kids born to a couple that escaped poverty, one of the few, taking one of the few paths that was available to them in 1961 in Puerto Rico. My dad joined the army. My dad did uh, two tours in Vietnam, and he was a frontline infantryman. And uh, growing up in Puerto Rico, my parents were strict. They wanted us to study, and, uh, and I did. I was, a, I was a good boy. I did my homework, did extracurriculars, and they were so proud when I got into Yale. Yale, which my uh, mother and Diaz pronounced jail. <laughs> as, as in, Javi got into jail. And they, well, they were very, very uh, proud, um, but I know that the many years that followed as a poor graduate student um, after I was released from jail, uh, <laughs> I think they found that confusing. Um, and if that was confusing, uh, this new career was certainly, I think, downright baffling. My mother was not one for disobedience. Uh, and though we never, never really came up, civil disobedience was probably included. Uh, so she probably would not like some of the places that this job would take me. Like, for example, Houston. <laughs> mm, lovely city. Uh, in 2006, the janitors in Houston were on strike. They'd been on strike for months, a very big public fight. At the time, uh, they were making minimum wage, $5.15 an hour. They were capped at working four hours a night. And uh, while they were taking $20, uh, home uh, a day to feed their families, they were cleaning some of the, the corporate headquarters of some of the largest, richest corporations in the world, you know, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, Halliburton. And their strike had gone on for a while. It was not going well. Employers had left the table. They were refusing to, to bargain. And so they put out a national call to, uh, to folks in the union across the country asking for people to come to Houston to do support work for the strike. So 11 of us from our formerly quiet uh, union of janitors here in Minnesota went down along with people from across the country to do support work for the strike. And we were going to take part in an act of civil disobedience where we would block traffic at an intersection in front of one of these large corporations. And when we were getting the orientation about this, I was scared out of my mind. I, uh, I had never done anything like this. And in sort of the, the, the veterans of the Justice for Janitors movement within the union, they all have all these stories with battle scars. Like, I remember the time that cop punched me in the face. And I'd be like, I taught history. <laughs> <laughs> So I was scared, but I did it. And that is how I ended up sitting, legs crossed, um, in the middle of a busy intersection of Houston, uh, arms linked with two Puerto Rican janitors from New York. And we are staring up the nostrils of a horse. And the policeman on that horse's back looks down at us and barks, you are going to be trampled. And he was right. 
They dispersed us very violently, and, and they brought uh, eventually this big bus uh, with you know, grated windows and, um, uh, and, and put us all in handcuffs. Um, and I will never forget being in that bus with about 45 people handcuffed, and they had blocked off the intersection, and the janitors of Houston had by then sort of gathered around. There were hundreds of people and protesters from across the country uh, gathered around the intersection. There was a lot of chanting for us, and drums, and, uh, and it was just beautiful. The night, it was dusk, and the, there, there were the colors in the sky, there was reds and oranges, and I just looked out there, and it was so intense. The, the, the janitors of Houston uh, had risked a lot by going on strike, but unlike me, many of them could not risk arrest because uh, for many, risking arrest could mean risking deportation. And I remember sitting in that bus and just thinking, wow, I guess this work is just going to be that hard. And, and then I thought, mommy can never find out about this. <laughs> so they take us all and we go uh, to jail, the other kind. Um, <laughs> and uh, we... Uh, and so, you know, I, I get fingerprinted and a mug shot. It's just like TV, only takes a lot longer. Um, and so it took about two hours to get run through that gauntlet. And I was the first of the protesters to get uh, to the, um, the holding cell. Um, and when they open the gates and I go uh, in, I was scared out of my mind because everyone in there looked like they had just gotten back from a knife fight. And I've never been in a fight. And the first thing I notice is that everyone, but everyone being held, were young black and Latino men. The guards, like the police outside, were not too fond of these outsiders who'd come to cause a ruckus in their city. Um, and there was this one guard in particular who I came to nickname Abu Greb, uh, <laughs> because he could not stop reminding us that he had just come back from Iraq. At one point, he got into it with um, uh, one of my jailmates, um, uh, this young uh, black guy, and um, he starts, he get, they, they're across the bars from each other, and he starts screaming at him. He says, you think I'm scared of you? You think I'm scared of you? I did two tours in Iraq as a grunt. I kill people. To which my jailmate responds, I kill people too. I'm in jail. Jailmates one, Abu Ghraib zero. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he actually had killed anyone. And in fact, uh, um, most of the people, uh, the guys in there, they'd not come from any knife fights. They were there for very minor infractions, like not having ID on them while walking down the sidewalk. The um, district attorney of Houston was, like the cops and the guards, not too thrilled about these outsiders agitating. And so he set bail for us at $888,888 each. It's the Crazy Eight's bail. And this same district attorney had uh, before set bail for a guy who killed his own mother at $35,000. But what we had done was really bad. So it took a while to get out of jail. Um, we uh, were arrested you know, Thursday evening. I got out at 5.30 in the morning on Saturday. 
Uh, but when I got out, we all learned that the employers had been embarrassed by the violence uh, that was shown on television um, and had come back to the table. And uh, by Monday, all of us from Minnesota were back here. And on my way to work, I get a call on my cell phone with the news that the janitors of Houston had won their very first union contract with wage increases and uh, health care for the first time. When I think back to that time that in that bus, I remember something that Paul Wellstone used to say. Sometimes you have to pick a fight to win a fight. And what I learned there is sometimes going to jail really does teach you a lesson. Thank you. That was Javier Mario. Javier led the Union of Janitors, SEIU Local 26, for 14 years before stepping down this past June. He's still an organizer and social justice advocate. He's also a writer and podcaster, too. To see some photos of Javier in his early days as an organizer, including his mugshot from this story, head to themoth.org. Remember, the issues that matter to you are important, no matter how big or small they are. When I was in third grade, I led a walkout so that we could have ice cream at lunch. It only took 20 minutes, but we want our ice cream and our freedom. And if third grade Dame can do it, so can you. It's not too late to register to vote. And if you need information on how to do that, head to themoth.org. That's all for us this week. Until next time, from all of us here at The Moth, have a story-worthy week. Dame Wilburn is a longtime storyteller and host at The Maw. She's also the chief marketing director for Twisted Willow Soap Company and host of the podcast Dame's Eclectic Brain. Podcast production by Julia Purcell with help from Rowan Nemisto at WDET. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.